ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we began last time kitab as-salah in the chapter of Sifatul Salah, the description of the prayer. And we mentioned that with regards to the description of the prayer, there are two types of descriptions to the prayer. There are two types of descriptions to the prayer. وَصِفَةُ الصَّلَاةِ تَنْقَسِمُ إِلَىٰ قِسْمَيْنَ صِفَةٌ كَامِلَةٌ وَهِيَ الْمُشْتَمِلَةٌ عَلَى الْأَرْكَانِ وَالْوَاجِبَاتِ وَالسُنَنِ وَصِفَةٌ مُجْزِئَةٌ وَهِيَ الْمُشْتَمِلَ عَلَى الْأَرْكَانِ وَالْوَاجِبَاتِ فَقَطْ We said there were two descriptions to the prayer as the scholars have mentioned. One is the complete and perfect description of the prayer. The complete and perfect description of the prayer. And that is the description that has or is inclusive of the pillars and the obligations and the sunnah acts. The description that is inclusive of the pillars and the obligations and the sunnah acts. That is the complete and perfect description of the prayer. Then there is a description of the prayer that is sufficient for the prayer to be acceptable. But it's not the most perfect and complete way. It is sufficient for the prayer to be acceptable. But it's not the most complete and perfect way. And that is the description of the prayer if a person was to fulfill the pillars and the obligations whilst praying, but they didn't perform the sunnah acts. They do the pillars and they do the obligatory acts. So their prayer is acceptable. Their prayer is acceptable. However, it's not the perfect and complete way to pray because they haven't done the sunnah acts. So they were the two different descriptions. And we know that a person should pray upon the description that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us. وَلَا شَكَّ أَنَّهُ يَجِبُ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِ أَنْ يُسَلِّيَ عَلَى صِفَةِ الثَّابِتَ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ لِقَوْلِهِ سَلَّمْ صَلُّوا كَمَا رَأَيْتُمُونِ أُصَلِّي And no doubt that a person has to pray upon the description that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us, the established proven description. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, pray as you have seen me pray. So, in accordance to that, we began with the first hadith last week, which was the hadith of Abu Huraira radiyallahu anhu, أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالْ إِذَا قُمْتَ إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ فَأَسْبِغِ الْوُضُوءِ ثُمَّ اسْتَقْبِلِ الْقِبْلَةِ فَكَبِّرْ That when you stand for the prayer, then firstly, Perfect your wudu. When you're going to pray, then prior to the prayer, the first thing, perfect your wudu. Make that wudu in the correct and proper manner, fulfilling all of the body parts that need to be washed in the proper and accurate way. That's the first thing, prior to the prayer. Then, after that, face towards the qibla. Stand in the direction of the qibla. Uh, and that, as we mentioned before, is a condition. هذا فيه دليل على اشتراط استقبال القبلة في الصلاة. 
This indicates the condition of having to face the qibla in the prayer that we already mentioned last week too. Fakabir. Then, once you've made your wudu properly and perfectly, you now stand and face the qibla. And as we mentioned, within that is also your intention. Obviously, when you stand and you face the qibla, you have the intention now to pray for the sake of Allah this particular prayer that you're going to pray. So you have that intention, you face the qibla, and then you do the takbir. You say that Allahu Akbar. And as we said last week, then that is the opening of your prayer. That's what you now enter into your prayer with. That statement, Allahu Akbar. And it must be that statement. It is not possible for somebody to start the prayer and say, Subhanallah. Or to say, Alhamdulillah. That doesn't work to start the prayer. What must be said at the beginning is the takbir, Allahu Akbar. Just like in the hadith, tahrimuha at-takbir. That the prayer, it begins, meaning all of the other affairs now are not permissible for you. You stop doing your other affairs now, you enter into your prayer with that statement, Allahu Akbar. And we spoke about how you're supposed to pronounce it properly. Don't say, Allahu Akbar. That's a mistake if you elongate the alif at the beginning, because that then changes the meaning of it. لا يجوز له أن يمد الهمزة بأن يقول الله أكبر. That's a mistake. And people they do that sometimes. لأنه ينقلب إلى استفهام because that then means in Arabic you're asking a question. And similarly, then you don't extend the alif. ولا يمد الباء. So don't say الله أكبر. You extend that ba and the alif. That 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 changes the meaning of it too. So you don't say Allahu Akbar and neither do you say Allahu Akbar. Extending it in that way is not correct. But rather a person pronounces it and says it in the proper manner, Allahu Akbar. And so that is the entering into the prayer. Um, وَلَا يَأْتِ بِغَيْرِ التَّكْبِيرِ مِنْ سَائِرِ الْأَذْكَارِ يُرِيدُ بِذَلِكَ اسْتِفْتَاحَ الصَّلَاةِ and it is not permissible for anybody to start the prayer with other du'as or supplications or any other recitation. It must be that statement, Allahu Akbar. فَلَوْ فَعَلَ If a person did start the prayer with something else, they think, okay, Allahu Akbar, Alhamdulillah, La ilaha illallah. They think, I'll start with La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Then the prayer hasn't begun. That person has not entered into the prayer in that way. فَلَوْ فَعَلَ لَمْ تَنَعَقِدْ صَلَاتُهُ وَلَمْ تَسِحْ Then after that, that's where we reached last time. ثُمَّ قْرَأْ مَا تَيَسَّرَ مَعَكَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنَ Then it says in the hadith, after you've done that, you've entered into the prayer, the next part of the hadith says, ثُمَّ قْرَأْ مَا تَيَسَّرَ مَعَكَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنَ Then read that which is easy for you to recite from the Qur'an. You say, oh Allahu Akbar, you go into the prayer now, you started your prayer. Now the next part it says, recite that which is easy for you to recite from the Qur'an. So what does that mean? Well, before we even get to what that means, a person may say, what about the opening supplications? What about the opening supplications? You do the takbir, Allahu Akbar, 
What about those opening supplications? لم يذكر هنا الاستفتاح بعد تكبيرة الإحرام Those opening supplications that people have memorized before going into Al-Fatiha. When you say the takbir Allahu Akbar, then you recite those opening supplications. Then you go into Fatiha afterwards typically. Those opening supplications haven't been mentioned in this hadith. In this hadith it says, do your takbir and then start with that which is easy for you from the Quran. Which means Al-Fatiha. So what about the opening supplications? They're not mentioned here. فَدَلَّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ غَيْرُ وَاجِبُ الشيخ الفوزان حفظه الله تعالى He says that is therefore an evidence to indicate that those opening supplications before you go into the Fatiha, the opening supplications, that they are not an obligation. The Shaykh says this hadith could be used as an evidence to indicate that those opening supplications are not an obligation. Because in this hadith, they haven't been mentioned. And this is a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ was explaining to that individual who prayed in a bad manner how to pray properly. The Prophet ﷺ was describing to him how to pray properly. So surely, if that opening supplication was an obligation, then the Prophet ﷺ would have told the individual there and then, this is the first thing to do after your takbir. It's not possible the Prophet ﷺ would have left out an obligation. So some of the scholars use that as an evidence to say that those opening supplications, they are not an obligation. Of course, it is sunnah to recite it and it is good, but not as an obligation. لِأَنَّهُ لَوْ كَانَ وَاجِبًا لَعَلَّمَهُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ لِهَذَا الرَّجُلُ وَإِنَّمَا الْإِسْتِفْتَاحِ مُسْتَحَبٌ كَمَا يَأْتِي فِي الْأَحَادِيثِ فَالِاسْتِفْتَاحَاتِ الْوَارِدَةِ فِي الْأَحَادِيثِ الْآتِيَةِ مِنْ بَابِ الْإِسْتِحْبَابِ So those opening recitations, those opening supplications that you would typically recite straight after the takbir, before getting onto the fatiha, those opening supplications, the shaykh says, they are mustahab, they are something recommended, highly recommended for you to read, and you should read them when you start your prayer. However, it can't be said that they are an obligation due to this hadith not mentioning them at the beginning. The Prophet ﷺ himself did used to recite those opening supplications. The Prophet ﷺ himself did used to recite those opening supplications before the Fatiha. كَانَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَفْعَلُهَا كَمَا سَيَأْتِي فَدَلَّ عَلَى أَنَّ فِعْلَهُ لَهَا صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مِنْ بَابِ الْإِسْتِحْبَابِ لَا مِنْ بَابِ الْوُجُوبِ So the fact that the Prophet ﷺ did used to recite those opening supplications before the Fatiha, however, he didn't tell this individual when he was correcting him on his prayer that you have to do it, that indicates what then? The Prophet ﷺ used to do it. But he didn't command this person to have to do it. Therefore, it's mustahab, but not obligatory. That's what the scholars, they say, uh, can be derived from this. And of course, some of the scholars, they may say that it is an obligation. There may be uh, opinions of that nature, but here, a Shaykh al-Fawzan, Hafidahullah, based upon this evidence like that, explains that it is something not obligatory, but mustahab, and that you should do, because the Prophet ﷺ did used to do it. So then, 
Quran. So read that which is easy for you to recite from the Quran. They said that the purpose or the intent, the meaning of this statement, that once you once you've said your Allahu Akbar, the takbir, and you started, then recite that which is easy for you to recite from the Quran. The scholars have said the meaning of that is the Fatiha. Because no doubt the Fatiha, that is the easiest thing to recite for the people. And there is in fact an evidence from another narration. قَالُوا الْمُرَادُ بِهِ الْفَاتِحَا بِدَلِيلِ الرِّوَايَةِ الَّتِي سَتَأْتِي ثُمَّ قْرَأْ بِفَاتِحَةِ الْكِتَابِ There is in fact another narration where it says, Then recite the Fatiha of the Qur'an, the book. i.e. Al-Fatiha. So the other narration explicitly says, after your takbir, then recite Al-Fatiha. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So the other narration explicitly says that. So therefore the scholars, they say this narration similarly, where it says recite that which is easy for you to recite, the meaning of it is Al-Fatiha. لِأَنَّهَا مُيَسَّرَ The shaykh says it's very easy. Al-Fatiha is easy and everybody has memorized Al-Fatiha. لِسُهُولَتِهَا وَقِصَرِهَا Due to the ease, the ease of memorizing Al-Fatiha and the shortness of Al-Fatiha. وَمَنْ كَانَ لَا يُحْسِنُ الْفَاتِحَا فَإِنَّهُ يَقْرَأْ مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ غَيْرُ الْفَاتِحَا إِذَا كَانَ يَحْفَظُ شَيْئًا مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ If an individual hasn't memorized Al-Fatiha, if a person hasn't memorized Al-Fatiha, then the shaykh says he can recite whatever else he knows from the Qur'an. If he knows something else from the Qur'an, some other ayat of the Qur'an, and he hasn't memorized Al-Fatiha, then it's okay for that individual in that situation then to recite the other ayat of the Qur'an that he knows. وَإِن لَمْ يَحْفَظْ شَيْئًا مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ لَلْفَاتِحَ وَلَا غَيْرِهَا And if an individual hasn't memorized anything, he doesn't know the Fatiha, so he can't recite that. He doesn't know any other ayat of the Qur'an, so he can't recite that. Then what does he do? فَإِنَّهُ يَحْمَدُ اللَّهُ وَيُهَلِّلُهُ وَيُكَبِّرُهُ بَدَلِ الْقِرَاءَ كَمَا سَيَأْتِي Then that individual, he recites certain other supplications. And they will come. We'll mention what they are in a moment. There are certain other supplications then that a person can recite in place of the Fatiha because he doesn't know it. He doesn't know any other ayat. Then in that case, he can recite certain other supplications to take that place. And they will come in a moment. فَالْفَاتِحَةُ لَا بُدَّ مِنْ قِرَاءَتِهَا So the point being here, that you must recite Al-Fatiha, or at least something from these other options. لِأَنَّهَا رُكْنٌ مِنْ أَرْكَانِ الصَّلَاةِ Because it is a pillar from the pillars of the prayer, the recitation of Al-Fatiha. لِقَوْلِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم uh, because of the statement of the Prophet sallam, There is no prayer for the one who does not recite with the Fatiha, the opening of the Qur'an, Al-Fatiha. There is no prayer for the one who does not recite with Al-Fatiha. This statement now then, with regards to having to recite Al-Fatiha, there is evidence in the Qur'an for it also. 
or there are ayat that directly have the same meaning. In Surah Al-Muzzammil, ayah number 24 example, فَقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنَ And recite that which is easy from the Qur'an. Recite that which is easy upon you from the Qur'an. يُفَسَّرُ بِأَنَّ الْمُرَادُ بِهِ الْفَاتِحَةِ Again, the tafsir that is given here is that that which is easy for you is the Fatiha. وَمَا زَادَ عَلَيْهَا مِمَّا يُقْرَأْ بَعْدَهَا مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ And also, that which you can recite on top of the Fatiha, فَدَلَّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ قِرَاءَةَ الْقُرْآنِ فِي الصَّلَاةِ رُكْنٌ مِنْ أَرْكَانِهَا إِذَا أُرِيدَ بِذَلِكَ الْفَاتِحَةِ So therefore, with regards to the Fatiha, the recitation of the Qur'an, with regards to the Fatiha is a pillar from the pillars of the prayer. So that is the next section. So far we've now been told in the hadith, firstly perfect your wudu. Then after that, face the qibla. And within that is the intention. Then after that, make the takbir. Allahu Akbar. Then after that, the fourth thing mentioned here was the recitation of Surah Al-Fatiha. Or something in place of it like other ayat from the Quran if you don't know it. Or even if you don't know the ayat, then we'll come to what you recite from the supplications. Then after that, after the recitation of Al-Fatiha and some other ayat of the Quran that you know on top of that, ثُمَّ Then go into the ruku' وَالرُكُوع هُوَ الْإِنْحِنَاءُ إِلَىٰ أَن تَصِلَ يَدَاهُ إِلَىٰ رُكْبَتَيْهِ The ruku' is that you bend down, that you bend down or you bow down up until your hands go onto your knees. You bow down up until your hands arrive at your knees. That bowing down, that bending down, to the extent that your hands then reach up to your knees, that is the ruku' And that is also a pillar from the pillars of the prayer. وَهُوَ رُكْنٌ مِنْ أَرْكَانِ الصَّلَاةِ بَلْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى عَبَّرَ عَنِ الصَّلَاةِ بِالْرُكُوعِ فَقَالْ وَارْكَعُوا مَعَ الرَّاكِعِينَ So much so is the importance of this pillar of the prayer, the bowing, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even phrased or expressed the meaning of the prayer with the word ruku'. The word ruku' was used, or this expression of bowing down was used, which is only one part of the prayer, to indicate the whole of the prayer. Like in the ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah number 43, and bow down with those who bow down. Do the ruku' with those who do the ruku' Meaning pray. Pray is the meaning of that ayah. But the phrase or the expression used is specifically the ruku' So this indicates the greatness of that pillar of the prayer. فَعَبَّرَ عَنِ الصَّلَاةِ بِالرُّكُوعِ So the expression given to depict the whole of the prayer was that pillar of the bowing. لِأَنَّهُ أَعْظَمُ أَرْكَانِهَا وَلِأَنَّهُ خُضُوعٌ لِلَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى وَإِجْلَالٌ لَهُ وَلَا يَجُوزُ الرُّكُوعِ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى فَمَنْ رَكَعَ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ أَوْ سَجَدَ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ كَفَرَ وَارْتَدَّ عَنْ دِينِ الْإِسْلَامِ 
لأن الركوع والسجود لا يكونان إلا لله سبحانه وتعالى So this ruku' it is a great act of obedience and submissiveness to Allah. This ruku' this bowing down, it is a great act of submissiveness and humility in front of Allah. It's a great act of this subservience in front of Allah. And it, as well as the prostration, then they cannot be done for other than the sake of Allah. They cannot be done for others besides Allah. And for the one who bows or prostrates to others besides Allah, then that is an act of disbelief. It is an act of apostasy. The person who bows or prostrates to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَلَا يَجُوزُ الرُّكُوعِ لِلْمَخْلُوقِينَ Therefore it is not permissible to bow to creation, to other people. It is not permissible to bow down to anything in creation. لِأَنَّهُ عِبَادَهُ because it is an act of worship. And worship, all types of worship, are the sole right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if an individual was to take any act of worship and redirect it to others besides Allah, then that is what the basis of shirk is. The basis of shirk. That is that you take something which is an act of worship and you redirect it to someone or something or some deity besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the next part that is mentioned, this bowing, the ruku'. Then it says, Bow, go into the ruku' until... You are settled until you are settled in that ruku'. Are there any other translations here? Tranquil. tranquil. Until you are tranquil in the ruku'. Until you are settled and tranquil in the ruku'. At-tuma'nina hiya sukun. At-tuma'nina, here we're being told, go into the ruku'. But not just to go into the ruku'a and come straight out again. The way the prayer is, the description of the prayer, is that you go into the ruku' and you are settled and calm and tranquil in that position of bowing in that position of the ruku' وَقِيلْ أَطْمَأْنِينَ And some of the scholars, they say the meaning of being settled or tranquil in the ruku' أَنْ يَأْتِيَ بِالْوَاجِبِ فِي الرُّكُوعِ وَهُوَ قَوْلُهُ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّيَ الْعَظِيمِ some of the scholars say the meaning of that is that you go into the ruku' and that you are settled and calm and tranquil and you recite Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim and then you can come up again. So the point being when a person goes into ruku' into that position of bowing then a person must be settled must be calm and relaxed in that position of bowing. Then you raise up after having been in a position of calmness and serenity and tranquility in that bowing, then you raise up. يعني من الركوع إلى القيام حتى تعتدل قائما وفي الرواية حتى تطمئن قائما فدل على أن الرفع من الركوع ركن من أركان الصلاة. 
Then the hadith says, after going into bowing and calmly settling yourself in that bowing position, reciting what needs to be recited, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, then you raise up, and even when you raise up, then you stand until you are calm and settled in the standing position. You stand up then, and you raise up from the bowing, from the ruku'ah, until you are calm and settled in the standing position. This therefore indicates that standing up from the bowing and becoming calm and settled in the standing position before going down into prostration, being calm and settled in the standing position, ruknun min arkani salah. This is also a pillar from the pillars of the prayer. Dalla ala anna rafi min ruku'ah. It therefore indicates that coming out of the bowing and standing up calmly settled in that position is also a pillar from the pillars of the prayer. So look at this next section now. And how important this is and how applicable it is with great regret to so many people. فَلَوْ ثُمَّ سَجَدَ مِنْ وَلَمْ يَرْفَعْ مِنْهُ لَمْ تَصِحْ صَلَاتُهُ If an individual goes into the ruku' then from the ruku' he barely even stands up, a little flick, and then straight down into the prostration, his prayer is incorrect. A person who goes into ruku' and then barely comes up, as you see the people doing sometimes, they go into the ruku' it's barely a little flick with the head, and straight down into the prostration. That is incorrect. The proper prayer, the description of the Prophet ﷺ in the prayer, after the ruku' you come up, and you stand upright, calmly and settled. Then you go down into the prostration. As for a person who comes out of the ruku' in a quick flick movement, barely even standing straight, barely calm or serene, a quick flick movement and they're down into the prostration, then they haven't stood up. They haven't stood up from their ruku'ah. And that is incorrect now their prayer. وَلَا بُدَّ مِنَ الرَّفْعِ مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ So you must stand properly out of the ruku'ah. وَلَا بُدَّ أَيْضًا مِنَ الْإِعْتِدَالِ And you have to then be upright and straight after coming out of the ruku'ah. In your normal upright straight position. فَلَا يَكْفِي أَنْ يَرْفَعْ بِسُرْعَةً ثُمَّ يَسْجُدُ so it is not sufficient that a person comes out of the ruku' with a quick flick and straight down into the sajda. That is not sufficient. Rather the person has to come up and be upright and straight and settled. And that is mentioned in another narration. Until every bone of his backbone comes back into place again. How does your backbone come back into place? You have to stand upright. So the hadith mentions very clearly that you have to come out of the ruku'ah to the extent that your backbone is all lined up again. The bones in your backbone are upright and lined up. And that can only occur if you come out and you stand properly and upright and settled. That's what's required. تَعْتَدِلُوا uh, الفقار بعد أن حناها في الركوع كما كانت وتعود إلى أمكنتها هذا هو الاعتدال 
So, when you go into the bowing, no doubt your backbone, it bends. The bones in your backbone, they all bend to go into the rukur. What's required now is when you raise out of the rukur, that those bones of the backbone become upright and straight in your backbone again. You stand properly and settled. فَلَوْ رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ رَفْعًا يَسِيرًا وَلَمْ يَعْتَدِلْ ثُمَّ سَجَدْ لَمْ تَسِحَّ صَلَاتُهُ So if the shaykh says, these are the words of Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Allah, if a person comes out of the ruku' and barely just raises his head and straight down into the sujood, then his prayer is not correct. His prayer is not correct, it is not proper. وَكَذَلِكَ لَوْ رَفَعَ وَاعْتَدَلَ وَلَكِنَّهُ لَمْ يَطْمَئِنْ وَيَقِفْ لَمْ تَصِحْ صَلَاتُهُ To the extent that even if a person did come all the way up, he came all the way up, but he doesn't settle. He comes all the way up, upright, but he doesn't settle. He comes up, he's upright and straight down again. Even that the shaykh says is not sufficient. The description of the Prophet's prayer is that you come up and your backbone is straight and you stop. You stop and you are tranquil in that position and you settle in that position, then you move on. Not even enough to come up and be upright, but then straight away flick down into the prostration. Rather you come up into that upright proper standing position with the backbone in place and you settle. You allow yourself to settle, then you move on to the next uh, uh, position of the prostration. فَلِعْتِدَالُ رُكَنْ وَالطُّمَأْنِينَ بَعْدَ الْعْتِدَالِ رُكْنٌ آخَرٌ حَتَّى يَقُولُ رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدَ So coming upright, coming upright is a pillar. The Shaykh says that's a pillar. And then settling yourself in that upright position, that is also a pillar. You must come up and be upright and settle yourself in that and say the supplication, رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدَ and then you move on to the next position. Uh, then what is the next position? As the hadith now says, ثُمَّ جُدَّ I remember, this is the overall description of the prayer. The details of how you put your hands and what you do, that will come in the following hadith. Here now it says, ثُمَّ جُدَّ Then prostrate. وَالسُّجُودَ هُوَ وَضْعُ الْجَبْهَةِ وَالْأَنْفِ وَبَقِيَّةَ الْأَعْضَاءَ السَّبْعَةِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ أَوْ عَلَى مَوْضِعِ السُّجُودِ لِقَوْلِهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم أُمِرْتُ أَنْ أَسْجُدَ عَلَى سَبْعَةِ أَعْضُمِ The prostration is to place the forehead and the nose and the remainder of the seven body parts onto the place of prostration. Due to the statement of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم that I have been commanded to prostrate upon seven organs. I have been commanded to prostrate upon seven body parts. So what are those seven body parts? Al-Jabha wal-Anf huma adun wahid. The forehead and the nose, that's one body part. The forehead and the nose, that's considered as one. So in the prostration, the forehead and the nose must touch the ground. The forehead and the nose, that is one aspect. And as we'll come to see in the narrations, the scholars, they say, it's not just the tip of your nose either. It's the, the main body of the nose. The main body of the nose and the forehead. 
Not just the tip of the nose either. So the main body of the nose and the forehead, they touch the ground. That's one. Waliadani and the two hands. That's two. Warukbatani, the two knees. That's two. Warusul Qadameini and the toes, your feet. That's another two. So that ends up now being seven. Two hands, two knees, two feet. That's six, two of each. And then the forehead and the nose is considered as one. That's seven. They are the seven body parts. You can imagine now when you prostrate, your two hands are touching, your two knees are touching, your two feet are touching, the, the, end, the ends of your feet, and the forehead and the nose is touching. They are the seven body parts for the prostration. And those seven body parts must touch the ground and make contact with the ground in the prostration. فَلَوْ رَفَعَ وَاحِدًا مِنْ هَذِهِ السَّبْعَ طِيلَةَ السُّجُودِ وَلَمْ يَضَعْهُ عَلَى الْأَرْضَ لَمْ تَصِحَّ صَلَاتُهُ إِلَّا إِذَا كَانَ هَذَا لِعِذَرِ So if a person went into prostration, and one of those seven body parts did not touch the ground at all in his prostration, he went into prostration, and he didn't put his head down right, and he wasn't really touching his nose on the ground, or for some reason he kept one of his feet up, he was scratching it or something, and he kept one of his feet up the whole of the prostration, and he came back up again, that prostration is incorrect, his prayer is incorrect. Those seven body parts must touch the ground in the, in the prostration. Except if there was a reason, if there was some reason a person has a broken bone or something, or some other medical reason, or some other legitimate reason, that prevents one of those body parts from being able to touch the ground, like a broken bone or something, then that's another issue. That's an excuse. That's, that's another issue. That wouldn't nullify the prayer. But without any valid reason, if a person does not touch those seven body parts onto the ground in the prayer, in the prostration, then it is false. If one of those seven body parts was removed from the ground temporarily in the prostration, then that, as the scholars say, the prostration is still correct. A person is in prostration, the seven body parts are touching, something happens, a fly comes as he's in prostration, so he moves one hand to flick the fly, and he puts it back again. That momentary movement, temporary movement, that doesn't nullify the prostration of the prayer, as the scholars say. But the point being, if the person misses out one of those body parts on the ground for the whole of the prostration, without any reason then that uh, indicates that the prayer is no longer correct. أَمَّا إِذَا كَانَ لِغَيْرِ عُذْرٍ رَفَعَ وَاحِدًا مِنْ أَعْضَائِهِ سَبْعَةً بِحَيْثُ لَمْ يَصِلْ إِلَى الْأَرْضِ فِي كُلِّ سُجُودِهِ لَمْ يَصِحَّ سُجُودُهِ وَبِالتَّالِ لَمْ تَصِحَّ صَلَاتُهِ So the shaykh says, if there wasn't any reason to do it, and you didn't touch one of those seven body parts in the prostration for the whole of the prostration, in and out, and you haven't touched one of those parts onto the ground, without any reason, then that prostration is incorrect, and therefore the prayer is incorrect. So then, we know the other seven body parts you have to touch when you're in the prostration. However, there is more to it. Prostrate until, once again, you are settled in the prostration. You are settled in that prostration. 
لا يكفي أنه يصل إلى الأرض ثم يرفع مباشرة إذ لا بد له أن يمكث في السجود حتى يأتي بالواجب وأقله أن يقول سبحان ربي الأعلى It is not correct for a person to go down into the prayer, touch the seven body parts, but again to simply flick in and out again. Touch it down and touch straight back up again. That isn't the correct prostration from the description of the Prophet ﷺ. Rather a person goes down on the seven body parts and as the hadith says, again, when you're in that position of prostration, then you allow yourself to settle Allow yourself to be tranquil and to settle in that position so that you can then recite the supplications that are required. And the minimum is that you recite at least once, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. The minimum is that you recite it once. So you go into the prostration on the seven body parts, make yourself settled, recite that at least once, and that would be the correct prostration. وَإِنْ زَادَ إِلَىٰ ثَلَاثٍ أَوْ إِلَىٰ عَشْرٍ فَهَذَا أَكْمَلْ وَأَحْسَنٍ And if the person increases that to three times, that is perfect, that is better, that is more complete. And you can go up to ten times. And that is the most complete and proper way of doing it. وَأَعْلَى الْكَمَالِ عَشْرُ مَرَّاتٍ And the greatest of perfection is to recite that ten times in the prostration. وَمَا زَادَ عَلَىٰ ذَلِكَ فَجَائِسٍ and even if you were to go above ten times, it is permissible. كَأَنْ يَكُونَ فِي صَلَاةِ اللَّيْلِ وَالتَّهَجُّدِ فَلَهُ أَنْ يُطِيلَ فِي الرُّكُوعِ وَالسُّجُودِ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهِ For example, if a person was praying in the night prayer, and you may be elongating and extending the night prayer, and so your prostration is long and your ruku' is long, so you could recite more than ten even, and it is permissible. But otherwise, three or up to ten, that is the most perfect uh, way of doing that prostration. So, you then prostrate until you are in a state of tranquility and settled. ثُمَّ اسْجُدْ حَتَّى تَطْمَئِنَّ سَاجِدًا ثُمَّ ارْفَعْ So after you've been in the prostration on the seven body parts, you've settled yourself, you've read the recitations, then you raise up from that prostration. Up onto the sitting position. You then come up from the prostration into the sitting position. يَعْنِي مِنَ السُّجُودِ إِلَى الْجُلُوسِ And even that sitting position in between the two prostrations, حَتَّى تَعْتَدِلَ جَالِسًا Until you find yourself calm and tranquil and settled in the sitting position. هَذَا رُكْنٌ مِنْ أَرْكَانِ الصَّلَاةِ فَلَوْ رَفَعَ رَفْعًا يَسِيرًا ثُمَّ سَجَدَ لَمْ تَصِحَّ صَلَاتُ That sitting in between the two prostrations, that the shaykh says is also a pillar. It's also a pillar from the pillars of the prayer. To come out of the first prostration, and then to sit relaxed and settled in the sitting position. That is also a pillar. So if a person, the shaykh says, came out of the first prostration, and again, as we say, flicked up and flicked back down into the next prostration. Barely sat down. Didn't make himself settled or tranquil or anything. Flicked up, sit, flicked down straight away. That is incorrect again. And the shaykh says the prayer would not be correct. So now you notice, 
even from the general hadith yet, explaining the overview of the prayer and what to do. Even these actions, how many people fall into error regarding them? How many people you see in the rukur coming out of it, barely flicking up and down, not standing upright whatsoever? In between the two prostrations, going down, flicking up, they don't even come all the way. Halfway up, just to raise the head and the arms up a bit and back down again. That is incorrect. Here you see that the pillar is a person comes up from the first prostration, settles himself, calms himself, sits properly, then goes down into the next prostration. So then he prostrates the second prostration in the same manner as the first prostration. Settling himself in that position, reciting the supplications of that, and then he comes up from that prostration. الآن تمت له ركعة كاملة بقيامها وركوعها وسجدتيها وصفها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وصفا كاملا في كل ما يفعله فيها وأمره بالطمأنين في كل فعل ثم قال له افعل ذلك في صلاتك كلها هذا هو تعليم الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم so now up until that stage, the individual has completed one rak'ah. When you've now prayed the second sajda also, you've prostrated the second prostration also, and you raise up from that, that's one rak'ah that has been done now. And here, that is the description that the Prophet ﷺ gave, in regards to the outline of how to pray the prayer. And that is the perfect, excellent description from the Prophet ﷺ. And the Shaykh says, he highlights, the Prophet ﷺ, he made a point of this issue of settling yourself in all of those movements throughout the prayer. In the ruku'ah, standing up from the ruku'ah, going down into the prostration, sitting in between the prostrations, all of those movements, in every aspect what was mentioned was, making yourself calm and settled in all of those movements. Not to pray as you see the people pray, flicking up and down, without any serenity, any tranquility, without stopping to settle themselves. It's all flicking up and down between the movements, and that isn't correct, and that is not how to pray. So here we see that the point is made regarding settling yourself and being Calm and tranquil in those movements. The Shaykh then says, فَهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ حَدِيثٌ عَظِيمٌ فِيهِ صِفَةُ الصَّلَاةِ كَمَا عَلَّمَهَا النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَفِيهِ عِدَّةُ مَسَائِلٌ So this is a great hadith, which includes within it the description of the Prophet ﷺ of the prayer. And within this hadith, there are a number of issues that we can pick out now. There are a number of issues that we can pick out. Al-mas'alatul ula wa hiya min al-mas'al al-'adhimah an al-hadith fihi ta'lim al-jahil. Fa-nabiy sallallahu alayhi wasallam lam yaskut 'an hadha ar-rajul wa yatrukuhu 'ala jahli bihayth yusalli salatan ghayra mujzi'ah fa la yajuzu liman ra'a shakhsan yusi'u fi salatihi wa yukhillu biha an yaskut. The first benefit to be taken now, these are the summary now of the benefits of this hadith and the issues within it. 
The first one the Shaykh mentions is, he says it's from the great issues. Is this concept of educating the one who is ignorant of an affair. Educating the one who is ignorant of an affair. So here we see that the Prophet ﷺ did not remain silent upon this individual. He did not remain silent upon this individual and leave him upon that ignorance. Leave him upon that way of praying the prayer which was not acceptable. The Prophet ﷺ didn't leave him. Rather, the Shaykh says, it is not permissible for you to do that. If you see somebody praying and you can see them praying in an incorrect way, a manner which is not in accordance to what we've just seen now from this hadith. You see them with deficiency, blatant deficiency in their prayer. They're not fulfilling the pillars. Then the shaykh says, it's not permissible for you to just leave them. Allow them to carry on upon this ignorance and praying in this way. That isn't the prophetic way to pray. Rather you attempt to advise them in whatever way wisdom dictates that you advise this person. Maybe you yourself know the individual, you can advise them. Maybe it's not even somebody you know, but there's a way of you being able to go there and to discuss the affair and to advise. Or maybe you could tell somebody else to go and advise them. But some way or another, you make that step to correct this issue that you see of an individual praying in a completely incorrect manner or a manner which is deficient and incorrect in accordance to the way of the Prophet في الحديث دليل على حسن تعليمه صلى الله عليه وسلم. In the hadith, there is also an evidence with regards to the beautiful manner in which the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to teach the people. The beautiful way of teaching from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. فإنه شوق ذلك الرجل إلى العلم حيث إنه ردده مرة بعد مرة. وَقَالَ لَوْ صَلِّ فَإِنَّكَ لَمْ تُصَلِّهِ حَتَّى اشْتَاقَ هَذَا الرَّجُلُ إِلَى التَّعْلِيمِ فَقَالْ وَالَّذِي بَعَثَكَ بِالْحَقِّ دَبِيًّا لَا أُحْسِنُ غَيْرَ هَذَا فَعَلِّمْنِي فَعِنْدَ ذَلِكَ عَلَّمَهُ النَّبِيُّ سَأَسَلَّمْ We see here that initially the Prophet ﷺ told the man to go back and repeat his prayer. So the man went back and repeated it. But again it was incorrect. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, again go and repeat your prayer. So again he repeated the prayer. Until eventually the man came back and he said, I have no other knowledge of how to pray. This is the only way by the one whom Allah has sent you as a messenger. By the one whom has sent you as a messenger by Allah. I do not know anything better than this. So teach me. So this man was now enthusiastic to learn the truth. Twice or three times. He went and he prayed in a manner that wasn't correct. So now after returning, he had the enthusiasm, the zeal. Teach me then how. So here this indicates how the Prophet ﷺ did that in order to cause this amount of enthusiasm from that individual. And then the Prophet ﷺ explained the manner of this prayer by explaining one raka'ah. The Prophet ﷺ explained one raka'ah. And then he said to him, do that in the rest of your prayer. Repeat that now in the second raka'ah, the same thing. In the third raka'ah, the same thing. The fourth raka'ah, etc. This the scholars also say is from the good teaching, from the good teaching of the Prophet ﷺ. That he would summarize the teaching for the people. 
rather than elongate it in a manner which would become difficult for the people to grasp, he would summarize the teaching in a way that it was still sufficient and understood, but it covered the affair. So here the Prophet ﷺ described one raka'ah, and that was sufficient. There wasn't a need to go through the second raka'ah again, all in the same way again, which would elongate the response and elongate the teaching, when there wasn't actually a need. One raka'ah summarized what to do in the remainder of the raka'at. So again, the shaykh says this is from the mannerisms of the teaching of the Prophet ﷺ, that a person attempts to make the affair easy for the people to understand, speaks in a manner which is sufficient or suitable for the people to understand, not in a manner which is long or protracted, or in a manner which becomes difficult for the people to understand, rather in a manner that is suitable to them, then that is also from the teachings of the Prophet المسألة الثالثة في الحديث دليل على العذر بالجهل فإن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لم يأمر هذا الرجل بإعادة الصلوات الماضية التي كان يصليها على هذه الصفة لأنه جاهل والإنسان إذا فعل ما يستطيع واجتهد وأدى العبادة بحسب معرفته واجتهاده فإنه لا يؤمر بالإعادة لكن يعلم للحاضر وللمستقبل فإن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أمره أن يعيد الصلاة الحاضرة ولم يأمره أن يعيد الصلوات الماضية وهذا من يسر هذه الشريعة وسهولتها وسماحتها The Sheikh says within this is the understanding that an ignorant individual can be excused Ignorance is a reasoning for someone to be excused What does that mean? Here we see that this individual was praying in a manner that wasn't the correct way to pray. And that's all he knew. So even prior to that prayer when the Prophet ﷺ saw him, what about the previous prayers he would have been praying? He would have been praying them on that same way, in the incorrect way. He would have been praying all of his previous prayers on that same incorrect way when the Prophet ﷺ saw him. However, the Prophet ﷺ didn't say to him that therefore, now that I've seen you don't know how to pray, and clearly this is how you've been praying all of your previous prayers, you need to make up all of them. Because all of them were therefore incorrect upon this description of how you pray. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't say to him, you need to repeat all of those previous prayers. So here the Shaykh says this indicates that if a person was genuinely ignorant in that way about some certain ruling regarding the prayer like this now, then once he's educated, you educate him for the present tense, that right now you've been educated, repeat that prayer, and from now on pray it in that correct way. As for all of the prayers that maybe years you've been making this mistake or that mistake, then that ignorance that he was genuinely upon, he tried, he sought knowledge, but he just wasn't aware of this particular factor, then the shaykh says this hadith indicates that you don't command that person for him to have to then repeat all of the previous prayers of years gone by also. Because this man was not told to repeat all of the previous prayers. The Prophet ﷺ just said, repeat this one now, and in the future pray upon this description. Al-Mas'alatu al-Rabi'a fi al-Hadithi dalilun ala anna al-Tuma'neena ruknun min arkan al-Salah fi jami'i af'aliha. And this is important. 
The hadith indicates that settling yourself and calming yourself in the positions of the prayer is a pillar of the prayer. That is a pillar of the prayer in all of the movements of the prayer. The various positions of the prayer rather. Min qiyamin, from the standing. So when you are standing, it requires for you to be settled and calm. As we said, when you come out of the ruku'ah, then you must be in a settled and calm position with your backbone upright. Do the supplication, then move on. So with regards to the standing positions of the prayer, you must be in a settled and calm upright manner in the standing positions. Similarly in the ruku'ah, a person goes into the bowing, he must be in a calm and settled position in that ruku'ah. And we'll come to the description of exactly where your body is supposed to be, how you're supposed to bend down. Those descriptions will come in the hadith to come, inshallah. Then also the sujood, that a person has to be settled in the prostration, calm in the prostration, do the supplications. Then to come up and to be settled in the sitting between the two prayers, uh, the two prostrations rather. وَجُلُوسٌ لِلْتَشَهُّدِ الْأَوَّلِ وَالْأَخِيرِ And similarly, the sitting for the tashahud. When the person sits for the tashahud, then you have to be in the calm and relaxed and settled position for the first tashahud and the second tashahud. يَعَنِي فِي جَمِيعِ الْأَرْكَانِ Meaning in all of these pillars. فَمَنْ تَرَكَ الطُّمَأْنِينَ لَمْ تَصِحَّ صَلَاتُهُ So whomsoever leaves that pillar of calmness and settledness in his prayer, tranquility in his prayer, then the prayer is not correct. وَهَذِهِ الصَّلَاءِ ذَكَرَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنَّهَا كَنَقْرِ الْغُرَابِ The individuals who pray without that tranquility, then it's mentioned in a hadith in Sahih Muslim. تِلْكَ صَلَاةُ الْمُنَافِقِ that the munafiqeen, they used to pray in that way, where it's like a crow that is pecking at some seeds. A bird when it's pecking seeds out. You have some seeds on the ground, and you see a bird standing, pecking the seeds. The head goes up and down, up and down, pecking the seeds. That's the example given of an individual who prays without any serenity or tranquility in his prayer. Like a bird moving up and down, up and down, pecking at the seeds when you see it. That's the description given in Sahih Muslim. And the Prophet said, Tilka salatul munafiq. That is the prayer of the munafiq. Those hypocrites, that's how they would pray. It's the description of how they used to pray. That when the time came, quickly up and down, up and down, done, we've done our duty. And that isn't the way of the prayer, that isn't the description that the Prophet mentioned in this hadith. That is the majority of what is mentioned. Then there were a few narrations that came after this narration to back it up. One of those was the narration of Ibn Majah bi Isnadi Muslim with the chain of narration used by Muslim. And that just backed up the fact that when you come out of the ruku' you have to be upright and settled. Then there was the wording of Imam Ahmad وَفِي لَفْظٍ لِأَحْمَدٍ فَأَقِمْ صَلْبَكَ حَتَّى تَرْجِعُ الْإِذَامِ In the wording of Imam Ahmad of this hadith, when he narrated it from that chain, he mentioned in it, Stand from the ruku'ah, فَأَقِمْ صَلْبَكَ Make your backbone, your, your body upright, 
until the bones go back. Make your body and your posture upright until the bones go back. So that again uh, clarifies this point. Uh, in the narration of Al-Nasa'i and Abu Dawood, you'll see them in the uh, in Bulug al-Maram, in those narrations that follow this hadith. Uh, and that's like we said, everybody should try to bring a copy. As we mentioned before, everyone should try to get a copy of this book. It's available make, uh, from the bookshop here. Seek the copies to be brought. Everyone should try to have a copy of the book, so that when you are in the lesson, you can read through the hadith as we're going through it. And that will then put this hadith into mind with the explanation. But as for an individual who comes without the text in front of him, then it's difficult. To the extent, as you mentioned before, I'm sure at the beginning of a Surah Talata, some of the scholars, they used to say, a person who comes without books, then he's not really a student. The best way to study is if you have the text. So what we're reading now from the hadith, you have it in front of you too. If there's other bits and bobs that you didn't understand from that hadith prior to the lesson, when we're reading through it, add the notes onto your book. That is the best way. So everybody should try and make an effort to get a copy of this book. Uh, and I'm sure the brothers can arrange a discount for a large amount of the copies to be ordered or something of that nature, inshallah. So, An-Nasai wa Abu Dawood, in this narration of Rafa'a ibn Rafi'a, إِنَّهَا لَن تَتِمَّ صَلَاةُ أَحَدِيكُمْ حَتَّى يَسْبَغَ الْوُضُوءُ كَمَا أَمَرَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى In that hadith, it backed up the first thing that was mentioned, which is that if you want to perfect your prayer, and you want to pray it on the perfect description of the Prophet ﷺ, then even before you get to the prayer, the wudu, that needs to be perfected and done in the proper manner. Uh, ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَيَحْمَدَهُ وَيُثْنِ عَلَيْهِ Now this will explain what do you do if a person can't recite the Fatiha. That we mentioned at the beginning. If a person doesn't know Al-Fatiha, then what do you do? قِرَاءَةُ الْفَاتِحَ رُكْنٌ مِنْ أَرْكَانِ الصَّلَاةِ لِمَنْ يَقْدِرُ عَلَى قِرَاءَتِهَا Recitation of the Fatiha, it is a pillar. From the pillars of the prayer for the one whom is able to do that. But if an individual is not, or before we even get to that in fact, وَكَذَلِكَ مَنْ لَا يُجِيدُ الْقِرَاءَةِ فَإِنَّهُ يَقْرَأُهَا بِحَصَدِ اسْتِطَاعَتِهِ وَلَوْ لَحَنَ فِيهَا إِلَّا أَنَّهُ إِذَا كَانَ اللَّحَنْ يُحِيلُ الْمَعَنَى وَهُوَ يَقْدِرُ عَلَى تَعْدِيلِهِ وَتَرْكِهِ لَمْ تَصِحَّ صَلَاتُ حَتَّى يَعْدِلَ هَذَا اللَّحَنْ أَمَّا إِنْ كَانَ اللَّحَنْ لَا يُحِيلُ الْمَعَنَى فَإِنَّ Anybody who is able to recite the Fatiha, who knows it, then you must recite that Fatiha. Even the Shaykh says, if a person can't pronounce it properly, a person, is, his recitation is Arabic, it's not that good. He can't read the Fatiha properly, but he can manage it. It's manageable. Then even in that situation, the Shaykh says, if a person can manage it, even if he can't get the words precisely accurate, as long as the words are generally as they should be, and the meaning of anything hasn't changed, you haven't changed the meanings of the words by completely putting different letters in and sounds in. As long as you don't go to that level, as long as you can still read it, it's manageable, it's not perfect, the recitation may not be perfect, but it's manageable and you can get the words right and the pronunciation just about right, then you have to read it. 
You have to read it even if it's not perfect in the recitation. As long as it's generally on the correct way of reciting it, the words and the letters and the meanings don't change. If somebody, the Shaykh says, recites it in, a, in an incorrect manner, the, the pronunciation isn't good, to the extent that he's actually changing the meanings of it, and he has the ability to learn, it's not like it's somebody who just can't do it, they're just being lazy, they have the ability to learn and to rectify that, and they could rectify that, then for that person he must do that, must learn the Fatiha to be able to recite it at a level which is at least acceptable. The words and the sounds are being read properly. Nobody says you need to know full tajweed. But as long as you can pronounce it properly with the letters and the sounds and the meanings don't change, then you need to be able to do that. أَمَّا مَنْ كَانَ لَا يُحْسِنُ قِرَاءَةَ الْفَاتِحَةَ فَإِنَّهُ يَقْرَأُ مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنَ if a person then, now moving on to an individual who genuinely just can't do the Fatiha. Now moving on to an individual who genuinely just can't do the Fatiha. قَالُوا إِنْ كَانَ عِنْدَهُ سَبْعُ آيَاتٍ فَإِنَّهُ يَقْرَأُهَا They say, a person who genuinely just doesn't know the Fatiha. If he knows at least seven other ayats from the Qur'an somewhere else, then recite seven other ayat. Because Fatiha is seven ayat. So if you know at least seven other ayat from somewhere else, then some of the scholars say, in that case, recite those seven other ayat. So an individual who doesn't know the Fatiha, if he has at least seven other ayats from the rest of the Qur'an, the scholars say, recite those seven ayat in place for the seven ayat of Al-Fatiha. وَإِن لَمْ يَكُنْ عِنْدَهُ إِلَّا آيَاتًا وَاحِدَةً If a person doesn't know the Fatiha, and he only has one ayah memorized from the rest of the Qur'an, that's all he knows. One ayah of the Qur'an, and it's not from Fatiha. Just one ayah of the Qur'an, then they say, فَإِنَّهُ يُكَرِّرُهَا سَبْعَ مَرَّاتٍ بِقَدْرِ الْفَاتِحَةِ They say in that case, that one ayah that he knows, let him recite it seven times. The one ayah that you have memorized from somewhere in the Qur'an, if you don't know Fatiha, you don't know anything else, 
repeat that ayah seven times to make it equivalent to the seven ayat of Al-Fatiha in terms of the number, seven and seven. أَمَّا إِذَا لَمْ يَكُنْ عِنْدَهُ شَيْءٌ مِّنَ الْقُرْآنِ لَلْفَاتِحَ وَلَا غَيْرِهَا As for a person who doesn't know absolutely anything, not Fatiha, not any other ayah, then in that case, he can recite this other supplication, بِأَنْ يَقُولْ Then he says, سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ وَلَا إِلَهَا إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ أَكْبَرُ Then the person recites this, Subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar, thumma yarka, wa yakunu hadha badilan anil qur'ani hatta yastadi'a tahseela shay'in minal qur'an. So this recitation, Subhanallah, alhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar, this recitation of these words, that then suffices in place of the Fatiha up until... That person then learns the Fatiha. Up until he then educates himself and learns, then up until that time he can recite these words and they are sufficient for that place. فَدَلَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الصَّلَاةَ لَا تَسْقُطُ بِحَالٍ مِنَ الْأَحْوَالِ This therefore indicates again the importance of the prayer that it doesn't drop from anyone. Nobody can say, well I don't even know the Fatiha yet, how can I pray? No, even that individual tell him this supplication these four or five words, he learns them and he does the prayer. The prayer upon every individual. But the Muslim, every Muslim, prays in accordance to his situation. So if he is good at the Fatiha, he knows that, then you recite the Fatiha, that's what you're supposed to do. And if he doesn't know the Fatiha, then he recites some other ayats from the Qur'an as we said, وَإِن كَانَ لَا يُحْسِنُ شَيْئًا مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ And in the third situation, where a person doesn't know anything from the Qur'an, then in that case he recites this supplication, Subhanallah, Walhamdulillah, Wa La Ilaha Illallah, Wallahu Akbar, and that is sufficient, the prayer doesn't drop. He prays the prayer with that supplication then. That is where the Shaykh concludes with regards to this hadith. The final point the Shaykh mentions is just a benefit regarding Surah Al-Fatiha and the importance of it. Surah Al-Fatiha, it's known as Al-Fatiha because it is the opener, the opening. That's what the word means in of itself. Al-Fatiha, the opener or the opening because it opens up the Mus'haf, that is the first uh, ayat that you find. And also it is known with other names. There are other names for Surah Al-Fatiha. For example, Umm Al-Quran, the head of the Quran, the mother of the Quran as you may say, meaning the head of the Quran, i.e. all of the meanings of the Quran, they return back to Al-Fatiha. That which is included within Surah Al-Fatiha, in terms of all of the categories of Tawheed, Al-Rububiyya, Wal-Uluhiyya, Wal-Asma, Wal-Sifat, those categories of Tawheed are all within Al-Fatiha. And the scholars, they say, the meanings of the Qur'an as a whole, the meanings of the Qur'an as a whole, they can all be summarized, or rather they all focus in on what's mentioned in those seven ayat of Surah Al-Fatiha. They all revolve around Al-Fatiha. 
And that's the importance and the greatness of Surah Al-Fatiha. And that is where the Shaykh concludes with regards to this particular hadith. And as we said, that is a famous hadith. That is a famous hadith that scholars often quote with regards to the description of the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ, the hadith known as the hadith of the one who prayed badly. The hadith of the one who prayed badly. In the sunnah, there are certain hadith. There are certain ahadith that become famous with certain names. There are certain hadith that become famous with certain names. This one has become famous with that name. The hadith of the one who prayed badly. Because the individual came and he prayed incorrectly, so the Prophet ﷺ corrected him. There are other ahadith in the sunnah like that. You have the hadith that is known as Hadithul Bitaqa, the hadith of the card or the parchment. It's known with that name. And that is the hadith of the individual who comes on the day of judgment with 99 scrolls of evil deeds and that one scroll with La ilaha illallah written on it. So in this way, some of the ahadith of the sunnah, they become famous in that way. And this hadith is famous with regards to the description of the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ. That's what we'll conclude today. And next week then, we'll go into the details. Next week we'll go into the details. When you do your takbir, how far do you raise your hands? When you go into the rukuah, how far do you bend down your back? All of those details now of how to do these various positions, then we'll start with those from next week insha'Allah ta'ala. Just a couple of questions. Uh, is it from the way of Ahlul Bid'ah to sit in a circle during a lesson? Is it from the way of Ahlul Bid'ah, Ikhwanis, to sit in a circle during a lesson? Ah, uh, to sit, uh, I understand now. You understand now, huh? To sit in a circle. A physical circle, huh? To sit in, uh, I didn't understand first. To sit in a physical circle. To sit, uh, all of you sit around in a circle for the class. Allahu Alam, uh, that sitting in a circle in that way, for some lessons it may be suitable. For certain types of lessons it may be suitable. Like for example, a Quran lesson or a Tajweed lesson, it may be suitable to do that. Where the people are sat around the teacher. So the teacher can go around and ask the students. It may be suitable. But typically speaking, for lessons like this, you wouldn't say it's suitable to make a huge circle in the masjid. Rather, here it's mentioned that it's from the guidance of the salaf. And in fact, you tell me the answer. We've done it. We've done the answer to this once a long time ago. There was a hadith which explained how you should sit in circles, uh, in lessons. How you should sit in the lesson. There was a hadith. We mentioned it a long time ago. Hadith of Jibreel, and it said what? But the point being also, where did Jibreel sit? Close to the Prophet. So the scholars they say, the scholars they say from the manners of seeking knowledge is that you sit close to the individual teaching. The one who is teaching, then you come close to that person, not sit far away somewhere. Rather, you try to come close to that individual, come close to the teacher, to the to the Shaykh, whomsoever he may be who's teaching. To go and sit close to him and uh, uh, with your notes and your, uh, your books, etc. So that you focus and you concentrate. You see in that hadith of Jibreel salam that he came right to the front and he sat next to the Prophet 
And there's other narrations like that. Narrations about certain types of people don't gain knowledge, or they will find a restriction in gaining knowledge. One of them is the one who is shy. Shyness, and he wants to sit quietly in a corner somewhere. Then that shyness there isn't really praiseworthy. It would be better for him in that situation to come and sit at the front. Sit at the front and concentrate and focus. And everybody knows that too. The ones who sit at the front and they are close, their focus will be better than the ones who are sat at the back. So the, the way of the Salaf and what's mentioned by the scholars is that you sit close to the person teaching. As for the situation of, for example, the sisters who wouldn't have the teacher physically there, then it's not something that is mentioned from the way of the Salaf or for what the scholars advise that you sit round in a circle. Like we say, in certain classes, in certain classes it may be suitable. For Qur'an or Tajweed, the teacher sitting in the middle, and everybody in a semicircle or something, that may be suitable in that situation, no problem. But as for certain, uh, classes like this, then there is no need for that, and it shouldn't be done, there's no need for that. Rather you come and sit close as possible at the front, make your rows, etc. in a position where you can get your book out and write your notes, and that is correct and sufficient to do. Uh, some of the people I think they make it a habit to always do that uh, Some of the Sufis and some of their likes In their classes, whatever their class is It's a habit for them to always have to make a circle around And I'm not aware that this is from the style of the Salaf Rather from the Salaf it was to come and sit close to the teacher uh, The second one is a fiqh issue regarding the wudu We'll come to that next week again The fiqh issue will come to it next week inshallah So we'll conclude there for now